0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Pants Radio, Australia's happiest
0: podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimirelis. This is a show where we talk about what's your story and what does it say about you. With me today we have Dr. Rahul Khanna. Thanks, George. Psychiatrist and friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Raul, do you want to give a little bit of background on uh, who you are, kind of, so people can understand a bit more about you?
1: Sure. Uh, so, I'm a psychiatrist. I, I work over at the Repat Hospital, working mostly with uh, current and, and former soldiers, um, dealing with sort of mostly PTSD and that sort of thing. Uh, I also dabble in sort of technology and health technology stuff, um, doing a PhD in the area. Uh, Second and- PhD. Well, no. One no, wasn't enough. First, first. Uh, All <laughs> right, first. Uh, I'm, I'm a medical doctor first, and now I'll be another type of doctor. Jeez, I didn't even know there was two different <laughs> Well, uh, it's only the Germans that are pedantic enough to call you Dr. Doctor, doctor, though. Oh, okay. oh, really? Yeah. They actually say Dr. Doctor, doctor? That's right. Okay.
0: Well, so and you'll soon be Dr. Doctor, doctor, yeah. doctor. Dr. Dr. Connor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Two years, so. uh, two years or so. Two years? Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. And, and so, because, yeah, so you're doing, you work, obviously, like, with the soldiers and that, but also you've got this focus now more into the entrepreneur side of side of like getting technology into the health sector here in Victoria and potentially Australia.
1: Yep, All that's right? it.
0: All right, cool. I think that's a little bit of background so far. We'll, we'll get down further into it <laughs> sure. as we go. Uh, so I guess starting off, I should say, what is your favorite book?
1: Uh, well, What's I the said-
0: one you chose to, <laughs> I guess I should clarify, yeah.
1: Yeah, I did send you a list. Uh, I think I will go with uh, On the Shortness of Life by Seneca, Seneca the Younger. Nice. Okay. Classic uh, philosophical work, that one. I have
0: grazed it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read it cover to cover. It's it's Uh, all right. It's... Oh, no. You're you're, going to help me out here. So, that is... So, that's a philosophical work. Seneca, the Younger of uh, the Romans. Yep. Of... I because he was he was around because there was Seneca the Older. Seneca the Older was not related though; it was a different Seneca. Wasn't that's it? right.
1: But I have no idea what his claim to fame was, if anything. Okay, right. Maybe yeah, he was I'm, just I'm, older. I'm going to be. <laughs>
0: that's a good. It's not much of a claim. Yeah, I'm just basing this on my hardcore history podcast listening. I'm like, I remember the Roman Empire episode, and they do talk about Seneca a lot. But let's. So what? So it's philosophy. At first, I should say. For people who might not know, so Seneca the Younger, he wrote this book on the shortness of life, and what is the basic thrust of the book? Uh,
1: essentially, so I, I think it was one of a series that he wrote while exiled. Uh, so he was the advisor for the Emperor Nero, um, and uh, was uh, I think Nero was not the most stable of gents, and uh, and so he uh, he sent him off, and I think eventually told him to poison himself, you know, as the Romans uh, want to do. Uh, yeah, and and so essentially, you know, there's a series of kind of his musings around sort of life, uh, and one of them is uh, is this one, uh, and essentially, I mean, despite its title, it's it's kind of it is a bit life affirming, you know, it's it's kind of um, the the thrust is that that life is short, and you, uh, but you should use that as a kind of force for motivation for want of a <laughs> for want of a better term yeah yeah like
0: it's like when you know a deadline's coming you're always going to work harder <laughs> yeah
1: basically some, something like that something like that
0: in this case a deadlines a literal <laughs> deadline uh, yeah. so that's, but yeah no, that's uh, makes sense so did you when did you first read it
1: oh, honestly i can't quite remember probably about about 10 years or so ago um yeah, and I've read it kind of once or twice since and and grazed. I mean, it was one of the, the early books uh, that I read on my Kindle. And so there's like liberal highlighting. Um, and and it was also probably associated with how I fell in love with the Kindle, because I think prior to that point, uh, those were the sort of books that, uh, you know, not that you should judge a book by its cover, but I would not be swayed by the cover and uh, and never get around to reading them. Uh, but just because it's
0: got like some statue of an old dude on the front or something
1: that's right statue of an old dude tiny text you know thin pages it's just yeah um uh, non in general actually was just less advertising in a non-kindle format i, I, I yeah think. i get see what
0: you mean yeah that's uh, fair enough because you used to be but now you're mainly nonfiction. yeah
1: mostly nonfiction now
0: but mm. You still, we used to bond back in the day with the fantasy stuff. Yeah. You still have a
1: time for that or not really? Still double. It comes in waves. That's good. All right. We won't geek out and go
0: too far down that <laughs> tangent. Because what, what's your best, actually, just quickly. Because we, we were in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah way before it was cool
1: <laughs> yeah i i ruined game of thrones for myself actually so i i did this ridiculous thing where i read the first book loved it then i read what what i thought was the second book but was actually part two of the third book that's and, a big jump oh yeah oh that's the red wedding <laughs> yeah yeah well you know i was like th- the first book i was like god this guy's brutal all all my favorite characters they're just you know die like nothing else so when i got to so i was already kind of primed to to this ridiculous pace that george had set and uh and then and so that's that's why it took me so long in fact till the end to realize what i'd done i thought well the first book was crazy but this second book god <laughs> this is just talking about a bunch of stuff i didn't even know about
0: <laughs> yeah. okay oh I hope there was a bit of a gap between those two reads yeah. because that is an interesting mistake to make. Yeah. Part two of book three. Yeah. <laughs> so niche a part of it. Okay. Yeah. So, but we're now onto the. Have you do, do much fantasy now? Because
1: you've got a kid now and you've got yeah. obviously doctor, doctor duties. <laughs> um, I, I still do a bit of sci fi or fantasy. I think the last thing I read was Time by Stephen Baxter. I
0: haven't read that one. Yeah.
1: Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Kind of eerie because the the main character is basically Elon Musk, except the book was written in nineteen ninety nine right yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah he
0: does he does cultivate that figure of the billionaire person who likes to play around, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically play with his toys,
1: exactly, exactly, you know there's kind of this genius entrepreneur uh running a company called bootstrap, trying to reach back into space essentially, oh okay, right, so yeah. it's very similar, very similar <laughs> <laughs> eerie, yeah
0: okay um cool but you've chosen for your one instead Seneca. I guess I should ask have you read much philosophy in general
1: uh yeah I so I I did do a a major in it so I studied medicine and <laughs> arts uh back in back in the day when you could do such a thing and uh and I did do a philosophy major but it was it was kind of it was a it was a bizarre experience in the sense that there were only like 10 people that did a joint medicine and arts degree. And so we didn't really actually have any prerequisites or anything. You just emailed some woman and said, I want to do this subject and they just enroll you, uh, which meant that my like philosophical education was really patchy, you know, because philosophers are all responding to each other's kind of issues, right? And if you don't know the full context behind, you know, what someone's writing about, it, it just doesn't have the same, same resonance. Yeah. Like
0: So as in like, you were just picking and choosing which philosophy classes to take. So you weren't getting that chronological sort of debate exactly. element to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That is uh, odd. <laughs> and and look, I think also I had a lot of other things on my mind, like, you know, medicine, parties, etc. And so I in theory have read a lot of philosophy, but I haven't read that much philosophy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I get, oh, look, you did it, you
0: still major you majored in it, so that sounds <laughs> yeah. like something. Yeah. I uh I did – so I when I first started, because I first did it was in arts before I switched across to like business-related sort of stuff. So I actually did philosophy for six months nice. – not six months, actually, for two classes because <laughs> I walked in and what they were talking about, I was like, what the hell is this? And I just <laughs> left because I'm like, this is crazy. This is, <laughs> it felt so ivory tower, like yeah. deconstructing of like a word or something where it's like, this is not <laughs> – like, cause since then I've realized like philosophy is so not that. Like, yeah. as in when it's good, it's really, really relevant to the world and it formulates everything. Like, it started yeah. off being part of like policy and everything should be incorporated. You should have philosophy in that. But yeah, that was, yeah. it was a bad first uh, experience where I was like, this is, this is silly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. There, there's a fabulous, um, Jumping to another book, though, there's, there's a fabulous other book called uh, "Confessions of a Philosopher" um, by Brian Maggi. I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, um, interesting guy. He was both a don of philosophy at Oxford, but also uh, a radio presenter and uh, and an MP in the British Parliament. And he he kind of it's it's part autobiographical, part like you know his personal journey through philosophy essentially. And he talks about how you know people who Go down that rabbit hole of uh, deconstructing words. Actually, don't have any philosophical problems in their lives. You know that it's it's kind of a side effect of profes- of the professionalization of philosophy. You because know? all the greats are, were not sort of generally not philosophers by like trade. You know, like Leibniz was a glassmaker or some shit, and uh, you know all of all of them had day jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they had other things to do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, as soon as you have like philosophical departments and stuff, people have to, you know, do something that they call philosophy. And that often, in his view, kind of not very
0: interesting. It sounds like kind of your view as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
0: So, we're not talking about that kind of philosophy, which is good. Yeah. It's like sophistry. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's, just gets so buried deep down where you're like, I try to unpack it. Yeah. But it's a struggle. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're kind of. It's it's kind of tricks, right, to make you feel like the problem that you have with you know the world or with life or whatever is is not actually a problem because you're just like you're not thinking about it or defining the problem correct, but that doesn't actually make it go away, right? <laughs> that's that I, we should stop
0: the podcast. That is like that's so good. <laughs> like I've I've heard it before. But that's exactly. It's like it doesn't matter. You define, like it's still there. It's yeah. Still there. It's like, what is there though? <laughs> How do we even know? It's all opinion, exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you so you actually studied philosophy, which is good because uh, I feel like philosophy's got it has kind of made a comeback in the self help world, and I feel like a lot of them, um, which is great. Anyone who's getting it from anywhere is fantastic, but I feel like if if for an in depth discussion, you might have someone being like, oh, you know, I read. Uh, the stoicism is good and you're like what is it They're like i don't know being tough <laughs> so, <laughs> it's good having someone because i don't even know that much so i'm yeah. glad to have someone here i can do that with uh how do you manage w- this is going to be a deep dive into philosophy i just realized because i've got so many questions <laughs> sure like far away like you said you couldn't um yeah we, because philosophy is basically a discussion over two and a half thousand years whatever right, between yeah. all these philosophers responding to what other people have said over that. Yep. This is a bunch of nerds writing letters to each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But
0: how, so how do you jump into that? Like, Because it does seem like that's when I look at it, I'm like, where do we even start with this? Yeah. What do you even do? Like,
1: So it, interestingly, almost every – well, no, that's, that's a gross generalization. But anyway, a, a lot of philosophers have often their first book has been – Uh, some sort of variant of a history of philosophy because often particularly like the more kind of modern ones, you know with brian being being a classic example of you know his his book kind of you know paints his own journey through the through the problems that he presumably addressed in his in his philosophical career um, as well Um, and there's a whole host of others so so that's that's kind of one way to start you know starting with one of those kind of history collections they're always kind of cast their predecessors in you know in a light that kind of makes it feel like they're building towards whatever the author's kind of then going to go right about. So it, it is a it's bit still got recursive. that subjective uh, yeah.
0: bias to it.
1: Exactly. But, you know, I, I think it's an interesting way to start. Um, there's there's probably some that are, like, more accessible than others, uh, particularly some of the older ones, just because I guess they're, um, there's less they're responding to. All right. Like, how old are you talking here? When you say older ones. Well, so Seneca issue. would be an example, right? He died kind of just shy of 2,000 years ago. So there's there's less missing material, I suppose.
0: Because yeah, yeah, yeah. even he, like, obviously, uh, the only one I have done, uh, the other book I've read all the way through um, is Republic. Okay. Uh, which is basically like Plato's thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I read it was good and I loved it. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You, you kind of have to say that, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well,
0: it's funny because, like, uh, I have this experience where I'm re- reading something like that, and it happens. It's a few different things I've seen it where it's happened, but that's one where, like, it gets to the pl- when he starts talking about the Platonic forms, yeah, or like the the start of that idea, and I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> we're doing it! I'm seeing it happen live. Yeah. This is amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, it's such a. I don't know. It's it's. Yeah, I'm a bit of a nerd. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I I know
1: what you mean. I mean. Uh, it's one of those one of those things, right? Where a lot of so much of this stuff has made it to our everyday kind of knowledge and culture that you you forget that there was at some point some person who actually thought of this or said it the first time. You know, Nietzsche's "All that is gold does not glitter" is a classic, right? Is you know, there's the some German dude a couple of hundred years ago, and that's a quote that. Gets used and recycled all the time, but you know, he was the guy. <laughs> Is he the guy
0: that said yeah, that? Really? Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I don't even know that. Yeah. What, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, he was the one who phrased that yeah, in, yeah. in that way anyway. All right. Uh, it,
0: so Nietzsche's like nihilism.
1: Uh, he was a response to nihilism. So, oh, yeah. okay.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. What was his response? <laughs> <laughs> in one sentence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, oh. doesn't have to be one centered. No, joking. no, but I, I guess he was kind of in that vein of you need to create your own meaning. Like, just uh, I guess he was famously sort of post-religion or you know anti-Christianity in some ways. Despite being sort of the both his his parents, his grandfather and his great-grandfather were all pastors, so he knew he, right. he knew stuff. Yeah, but yeah, um, it was kind of I guess not. Not anti-religion per se, but certainly anti-kind of organized religion. Um, kind of famously said that as uh, as a religion establishes itself, it would have as its it, it kind of ends up the the enemy of its first founders, you know, because the founders of religions and the early kind of adherents are rebels at heart. Like they're kind of stepping away from you know whatever the dominant paradigm is, and you know that's pushing boundaries.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It's funny. Um, you saying that because I've just finished reading a book. It's called "The Reactionary Mind." Okay, um, it's all about uh, conservatism as a movement, and yeah. uh, it's kind of this guy wrote in like twenty eleven, and he it's considered like almost the. The, the, reframing of what conservatism is, and it's correct almost. It talks about the fact that conservatism as a, as a model is actually counter revolutionary. So, like, as in, it's not a, it's not just the regular same old stuff. That's not what conservatism, conservatism as a movement is actually really, really fiery and passionate and revolutionary. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's solo, like, as in, so it looks at all these figures and it's like, you think that we're like, being conservative means you're going with the masses and you're just going with the flow, whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Real conservatives, they're like, they're carving out a space for themselves while the world changes where they hold on to <laughs> whatever they have. So, they're actually a lot of the time, yes, yeah, keeping this rebel figure, which is like funny yeah. because it's actually reframing that whole attitude of what they are. And it p- points to a few like big examples like uh Justice Scalia in America who like… Had exactly that. It's like this guy was being a rebel by sticking so solidly to the rules, but he actually is still embodying that countercultural movement. Yeah, like
1: that's really interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's right. a whole
0: reframe, really, really interesting. we well, check it out. Um, but it does talk about, but but that that does relate because it does mention Nietzsche in there because Nietzsche was political as well as, which is what philosophy is kind of is political as well as.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, he was. It's a very interesting figure. So his, uh, he was political but he was also less political than sometimes is is uh realized in that uh, so his his sister was uh, total Nazi, uh, his, uh, <laughs> a total Nazi basically his <laughs> uh a total like like to the point that her well particularly her husband but to the point that they left Germany and uh founded or well one of the kind of founding people of um, I can't remember where in South America it was, but there was this kind of new German, new Germany established as like this little kind of town in the middle of South America. Uh, South America of yeah, I feel like Argentina was pretty big on that. Yeah, I think it might have been Argentina, um, but I think I think it was somewhere even smaller. But anyway, um, yeah. regardless, they went out there to like. You know, have their pure race over in or in South America for some reason because Germany wasn't German enough uh, for them. <laughs> so, uh, so essentially, Amazing. after after he after her husband died, she came back to Germany, and as um, as Nietzsche kind of lost his mind, um, thought to be. Well, it's controversial again, but uh, but probably due to a brain tumor, a frontal lobe tumor. Is that just based on what the symptoms are? Yeah, yeah. So lots of uh, he complained to a lot of eye eye problems and stuff that. Um, and anyway, lo- there's there's been books written about Nietzsche's illnesses, and 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 he's got a lot of haters, right? As well uh, as you can imagine. So some of them tried to insinuate that he uh, it was tertiary syphilis, to partly as a way of kind of discrediting his his thinking. <laughs> I don't know how that discredits the thinking, anyway. But well, uh, I, I guess who's around, a about, Ooh. yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, Seneca, kind of returning to our, our original thing, had had a, a similar journey. So um, there's a lot of kind of theologians who kind of argue that, despite his his writing, he was a real hedonist and you know shouldn't be taken seriously. That he promoted all these kind of Stoic philosophies that he didn't actually embody and live in his in his real life, but. Um, all of those claims kind of start kind of five hundred years after his death, um, so they're kind of you know this.
0: So it's meant to be these people like oh, look at him, he he can't even stick to what he's saying. So yeah, obviously. Yeah. Okay, right. So that's exactly. kind of the angle. All right. It's so funny how that's part of the conversation. The <laughs> character assassination.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but Nietzsche. Uh, yeah. So so when she when she got back, she basically. Um, Re- rewrote some of his and republished some of his work to make him sound like a Nazi as well, like make Nietzsche sound like a Nazi. All right. Um, even though you know we have sort of existing kind of correspondence where he threatened to disown her because she married this Nazi kind of guy and all that. So he, he was kind of a uh, yeah. He had quite a few critiques of um, <laughs> of of the kind of German uh, culture of the, of his day, um, but. But there's definitely aspects of his philosophy that, can, that does play well into, you know, various kind of concerning movements.
0: Yeah, like he's, he's the whole Ubermensch sort exactly, of thing, right? That's exactly. the big one. The Uberman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I, I, again, I feel it's funny you're saying all this because this is, I'm so well aware how, even when I was reading, because it, it's it's fair enough almost, right. like even reading Republic yeah. uh, all the way back then for Plato's thing. But it's like, they say so much and... You're automatically, as you read it, picking and choosing those parts where you're like, "Well, this one's a metaphor, (laughs) but this one's what he actually means." Like you kind of like it's just because it's so so much, and some it's quite like pretty deeply intellectual. So it's like you can draw almost whatever you want from it. So it's almost impossible to, which might be the intention. I don't know. Maybe people are just saying stuff, and then it's like you take from it the parts that you think are relevant. But it's almost impossible to frame any one of them in any one way and being like, "This is definitely." what it is is that correct or is that
1: yeah yeah no i agree uh, i i think um a great t- two two things related to nature that that strike me about this is uh w- one of the things was he he kind of explicitly thought of uh philosophy or the job of the philosopher as being to try out philosophies almost like like masks or clothes um and you you kind of you take on something you you live as if it's true and s- see how it feels and write about it write about what what that Oh, uh, ah, yeah. uh, that's cool. And, and I like think just that's for a few months, just try it out. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, this week, this this month, I'm a hedonist. <laughs> next, <laughs> yeah. And
1: then next week, yeah, Epicurean, and
0: then, uh, yeah, Stoic. And all oh, right, okay. exactly.
1: So the, these things all have kind of flow and effects, I guess, on the rest of your life. And he kind of thought that that's, that's what you need to do, like live kind of, uh, dangerously philosophically. <laughs> uh, put your money in your mouth and walk the talk. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, even if it's just for a while, which is one of the things that makes it makes it difficult, right? We we like to pigeonhole people into, you know, there are this and there are that, and he's saying, well, I'm a this for a while, very specifically to see what it feels like to be be that. Um, yeah, which I do think is one of the one of the problems at the moment, right? Like now, it's it's almost, particularly in like the political world, a, a sin to change your mind, which seems. Bizarre, right? Like, mm. yeah.
0: So, actually, from the political point of view, uh, because you're reasonably well, y- you've impressed me by at least like not hugely active in it yet. <laughs> it's still <laughs> early days, um, but you are definitely getting involved in that sphere of the policy sort of stuff. So, I guess uh, if you don't mind me asking, what is your stance kind of politically? Is it is it any one way? Is it a
1: uh, oh well? I, I mean, I'm definitely socially very liberal. Like, I think I think. Uh, I think in general, in the heart of hearts, people don't and almost shouldn't like care too much about stuff, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, not controversial, I, I mean, you know, I, I think a classic example is, is Brexit, right? Like if before Brexit was a thing, um, if you look at old kind of polls and stuff, like something like six or 7% of Britain, uh, British people, thought that their membership of the European Union had like any impact on them, like particularly negative, right? Like they just weren't thinking about it. Um, but obviously, you know, once once politicians were like pushing this this kind of narrative that, you know, it's, it's awful and it's what ho- what's holding their country back, um, you know, those figures hit 50% or, you know, close, close
0: to. Right, like either way, like as in it just made it seem so much more important. Yeah, yeah. Like good or bad.
1: That's right. But really, does it make a difference to your life? Nah, not really, right? Like a lot of this stuff is just noise, and so we can pick out something and make it a deal, and uh, and and it's for political point scoring, you know, rather than actually, you know, moving anything forward. I think so. I don't know. Um, so, so I, I guess in that realm, I, I kind of think that. Uh, Politicians and politics and that sort of stuff shouldn't get too involved in in people's lives. You know, they've got essential services or whatever to. And this is making me sound like a libertarian, which I'm not really (laughs) either. Yeah. (laughs) Sound. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I think it certainly in terms of like you know social social policy and stuff. I I mean, I think the state should kind of just back off.
0: (laughs) Interesting. So, like, because by saying that you back off, you just let everyone do whatever they want if it doesn't
1: uh, largely i mean you know things like the gay marriage debate i don't think it's it's a debate you know uh, <laughs> just don't marry people of the same gender if you don't want to <laughs> and if you and if you uh for most people it's not actually going to make any difference for you either way once the like politics dies down you know yeah. no one really cares that's the funny
0: part isn't it yeah. as soon as it's like Done. Once it's agreed and locked in, everyone's just like, oh, all right. Yeah. What's the next thing? <laughs> What's the next thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's the next thing I'm going to fill up my day with being upset about?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So you're saying, see, it's funny because, like, uh, do you have, do you, do do you know much? You've read a lot of philosophy, mm-hmm. we can say, or at least a decent amount. Yeah. Um, policy as well, politics related stuff. You've got some background yeah, and knowledge in. Yeah. Yeah, a bit. So does, see, because I actually, I've probably maybe shifted slightly, but I would actually almost consider myself in the category of like, if this exists, a socialist libertarian. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Like, I think personal freedom to do whatever you want is the most important thing ever. But the only way you can do that is via a very strong, well-regulated and big government, basically.
1: Yeah, I think I'd I'd side with that. Like, I think there's a, I think you can you can go, get too much of a good thing with with everything, right? Like even um, there was a there was a thing in the Economist looking at uh, an article, not a thing, <laughs> an article in the Economist. Uh, this guy's not a doctor, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, where they were looking at um, privatization and efficiency gains or whatever, right? And they. Looked at, and they basically came to the conclusion that over the recent, uh, over the re- last like decade or, or something, I can't remember the time scale, but um, sort of the mo- more recent attempts at privatizing services have yielded like 0.07% kind of improvements in um, sort of the cost of, of the service. Um, so if you go back further, uh, then yes, like privatizing, you know, services did lead to, you know, cost savings, et cetera. But um now a the public sector has kind of gotten more um more effective at doing stuff and it's often the same people right they move between the private and public sectors so um you know there's there's not that much to be gained and also uh, like with any system you know they uh, once once they're set in they they get gamed right like so all the people that all the companies that bid for these sort of things know that they need to have the lowest lowest bid to to win the tender mm um uh, but equally you know it even if it's more expensive to actually run the government will be forced to come to the party anyway and support you because support the higher cost because it's an essential service uh so They'll front the cost yeah, yeah yeah um and so it's yeah i mean we've we've seen it here we see it everywhere um public transport's classic you know, there's there's cost blowouts all the time, but you know that it's just. Uh,
0: Are you saying that's when when private companies get involved? You're saying that's a negative to seeing that.
1: Well, I, I think you just have to be judicious about whether whether you're actually going to see any benefit, right? Like often it's more about uh, shifting blame rather than efficiency. I think these days, like you know, the government doesn't want to run a thing so that because it doesn't want to be blamed directly for it, mm. um, rather than it being a more efficient way to run. You know, whatever it is.
0: Bunch of cowards. Yeah, essentially. Well, it's a it's a very political response. Just talking about
1: a specific
0: instance that no one can really disagree with. I like where you're at. You've got a long career ahead of you. I think in public affairs. Um, okay, so there is no one thing, but your view is like you need to be on top of what's going on. Like trying to unpack what you're saying here. I guess because you don't want to be labelled in terms of any one stance specifically. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> no one's gonna listen it's fine <laughs> alright fine we'll, no no that's uh, I, I basically basically agree actually I'm like I'm not I'm definitely not a, against the free market as an idea <laughs> I am probably switch, switching too far into my own leftist philosophy now No, nah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of both so, worked in a bank you always get to see both perspectives but to go back to I guess Seneca <laughs> yes uh, what have you can you think of any instance this is very much just switching back to this now, just because I'm like, oh, we're kind of. Not. Um, is there any instances which really stick out where it was helpful? I guess.
1: Sure, uh, a few. I think. Um, I think partly it's just the the kind of awareness of how old it is, yet how modern. Like, if you didn't know it was written two thousand years ago, um, there's some weird points where you'd be like, oh, that's that's a bit strange, but mostly you'd believe that it was someone who just you know, a contemporary writing this about, you know, the problems of the day. Uh, I mean, uh, so sidestepping a little bit, there's another in the kind of, I mean, On, on the Shortness of Life is actually a short book, um, but uh, usually it's sold with a couple of other sort of letters and um, dialogues and things that he wrote around the same time, uh, one of which was titled On, on Tranquility of Mind. And it's, a, uh, it's essentially a letter to his mother while he's off in exile. And He's talking about how, um, you know, he's, he's basically having a whinge about modern women. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, they don't dress like you, you did. And they're not, um, you know, lots of like stuff that you can just imagine some crotchety old person right now, like complaining about the youth of today. Um, and there's a returning to the shortness of life. There's a There's a bit where as a throwaway line, he says, uh, no land these days is uh, populated by its native stock. You know, everyone is mixed and imported. Uh, and this was two thousand years ago, That's right? Hilarious. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think you know all of these moments make you just you know rethink your your life and and modern political debates, right, in a whole other way. Um, and so I find that that really helpful and neat. Um, the other kind of quirk is that the some of the ideas are kind of. Very similar uh, to to like modern popular um, ideas, but in a in a kind of with with a just a a very um, I guess alternative focus. So, for for example, uh, there's a point where he's um, talking about uh, the past, present, and the future, right? And and in sort of contemporary life uh, at the moment. Mindfulness and stuff is obviously a big thing, and with a focus on living in the present, etc. Mm. Um, and his argument uh, he makes pretty simply is that um, you know, look the the future is uncertain, the present is very ephemeral, uh, but the past you know the past is is there, it's locked in, um, and so you should take your time, like luxuriating in the past, uh, right, in the good moments that you've had and um, all of that stuff, because that's that's there, it's done, it's forever, right. <laughs> Um, So it's a cool kind of twist, I think, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, fair enough. Um, It's an underappreciated kind of aspect of people's lives. You know, we kind of zoom ahead and in in a way, uh, I guess even some of the people who are um, kind of encouraging living in the present are actually, you know, um, I guess, trying to steer you away from um dwelling on the negatives of the past but you know this is a kind of a call to saying well there's there's some good stuff in there as well and you could kind of focus on that too that's interesting
0: I, I, cuz my jump, my head's straight away jumping around with that and it's like because i'm just thinking of certain people i know um who have a tendency by living in the present you could argue they just they don't have to think about like stuff yeah because <laughs> like I think it's like obviously you shouldn't like sit there and be like oh I can't believe I didn't bloody I tripped over that time in front of that girl like <laughs> in, it's not that kind of living in the past but unpacking and thinking about like I guess almost the structure and story I guess of narrative of your past can help you obviously then make decisions about the present and the future and it can also mean you have to confront certain things about you um by doing that yeah does that make sense like as in like to go off and obviously you can't do any details here, but in terms of your from your psychiatry point of view, is that something that you see there? Like, is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's, I mean, I think we definitely have a skew towards the the negative in in our memories, and particularly with people with you know who've got depression and stuff. This has been this has been shown kind of experimentally as well. Um, you know, even in like very minor things, right? Like, or, or uh, very simple tasks. So, for example, if you take um, people who are depressed and people who aren't depressed, and ask them to remember a list of words, some of which are kind of a bit more kind of negative, like sad and you know whatever, uh, then ask them again, sort of a couple of hours later, they're more likely to be able to remember the sad words uh, or the negative words um, if they were if they're depressed compared to you know people who aren't um, and and to the like neutral or happy words. Um, so there's there's very much like a skew, and in, in fact, if you it's so interesting, yeah. Um and interestingly, if you kind of keep doing this this sort of test uh, on people who've kind of been given antidepressants, um the people for whom that like uh bias towards remembering negative stuff um when when that when that bias starts sorting itself out, it's an early marker that they're gonna like be less depressed over time as well
0: as in like while still on the antidepressants or even
1: yeah, while while on them. Um, so... It's like a sign that it's working. Yeah, it's a sign that it's working. An early sign that it's working before they're necessarily kind of feeling better and thinking about think, identifying themselves as feeling better. You can kind of see it in this kind of weird bias, memory bias.
0: Really? Mm,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. That's such a... That's cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah it is. Because you're not like focusing on the... Uh, you're not just exclusively focusing on the negative, I guess. Yeah. Are there people who like focus on the happy ones as well?
1: Because even- <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think, I think with, uh, I mean, this is where it kind of steps out of the, I guess, pathological and is kind of relevant for everyone. I, I think, um, with the pace of life, often people just don't think about the past in general. I mean, I'm certainly a bit guilty of this. I'm just always looking at the next thing and, uh, and the present or whatever. And and even though I look at the past, it's kind of not not very often. And it it is mostly in relation to making decisions about the future. Um, and that's partly what I like about this book. It does kind of remind you to kind of slow down sometimes as well.
0: To actually almost like sit and just think about some times yeah. in the past, like not even for any purpose, just literally just yeah. instead yeah. of watching some TV show, why not just think about summer in 2012. Yeah, yeah, probably a good year. <laughs> probably was actually, yeah. And I guess friendships and things like that, yeah, just like focus on that. to,
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I'm, I'm that weird person that contacts people who I haven't spoken to in like 15 years and catches a coffee with them. Um, so I think there's, there's, uh, there's definitely elements of this book that I've definitely taken on, uh, and that's one of them.
0: You do like a bit of a network, don't
1: you? <laughs> <laughs> people are very interesting, and look, even the least interesting person manages to do some interesting things after fifteen years. Give it enough of a gap, everyone's very interesting. <laughs> some something's happened. Yeah, something's happened. <laughs> something's,
0: something's happened. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. And even if nothing has, it's still gonna be interesting in the what, nothing?
1: Yeah. <laughs> fifteen yeah. years? Exactly. <laughs> Can't
0: enough? lose. Yeah. You probably end up doing some sort of Psych- actually, that's probably a general a simplification. Saying so you're doing some psychiatry as you talk to people, <laughs> you're like, "Oh, this person needs <laughs> some." I don't, actually, I don't know any antidepressant <laughs> brands to be able to name them. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's fun. Do you ever actually find? Okay, this is a complete danger now. But yeah, do you ever sure. find yourself ever doing the uh, analysis when talking to someone, being like, "Oh, he's clearly exhibiting traits of this and that."
1: <laughs> I try very hard not to. Um- Partly because, and and I know you threatened to to get very personal on this, and I'm, I'm walking straight into this one. But my old man's a psychiatrist as well, uh, so <laughs> okay. so so I kind of grew up with him, like analyzing people on TV <laughs> and movies and stuff. And you're like, it's I know how annoying that is. Right? <laughs> Just so, like, watch the you, movie. <laughs> okay, could you give an example? <laughs> Um, uh, you know, there'd be two characters doing whatever, and you know he'd be like, "Oh, you know, that's this this guy is doing this because he's, you know, they're trying to portray a narcissistic character, and he's going to do this and this and this, you know, to serve whatever psychological end, um, you know, that sort of thing. It's, I mean, he doesn't do it as much as as he used to, but this was definitely kind of a, a memory and a thing that would get annoying. <laughs> so now you're actively trying to avoid it. You look yeah. at your son and you're like, I'm not going to say
0: anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everyone's just doing stuff. No one knows why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So your dad was a psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> was he also uh,
1: into the philosophy sort of thing as well? Um, funnily enough, yes. Uh, but we we didn't... Yeah, I, I didn't really realize till kind of i was older like in my 20s it's it was just one of these kind of weird things where we turned out to be a lot more similar than i appreciated
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> but like i'm guessing it was just a case of like maybe you weren't you were still f- family friendly to each other but you just never like delved into those topics is that right
1: yeah yeah i mean we you kind of uh, yeah i i just didn't know heaps about his like the, the ins and outs of his life, right? Um, and particularly, you know, when he was younger and growing up or whatever, like what his interests were, what, you know, what he read. And, you know, those those things didn't come up hugely, you know. They, you kind of, well, I was aware of his contemporary self and what he tended to read and do and all that. But it was never, yeah,
0: I don't know. Just ruining TV shows, that's all you knew. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it just, yeah, had just been this this kind of, uh thing that we connected over as adults more right yeah okay was that
0: like did any of that go hand in hand with other big i guess life moments where a dad would look down at their son and be like oh you're whatever you know like getting married or something like that (laughs)
1: uh not so much but it was one of those things that um you know when you find out something find out a couple of things and it like recasts like some moments (laughs) in uh in, in life, so so for example, uh, I was when I was in med school, kind of in the first first couple of years, I was pretty heavily involved in kind of um, you know medical politics, so the AMA and those sort of organisations. Um, That's the Australian Medical Association. Yeah, 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 and the Australian Medical Students Association, and I was president of the Medical Student Society at the university, etc. Um, and he was always kind of like never commented, but was kind of. Uh, had this kind of wry smile about this whole situation, a bit like, you know, ha isn't that cute? Um, and I later found out that when he was in med school, around the same time, he, like, literally left medicine and was writing speeches for some dude who was running for politics uh, who later became the health minister. Um, and... Yeah, and was sort of very heavily politically active, <laughs> right?
0: So just so he's just looking at you and being like, ah, same thing again. Yeah, he's like, you'll you'll learn, son.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: That's hilarious. Yeah, That's okay, right. And so you just weren't aware of that element nope, of his it... life like that. Okay, so so he didn't actually push you into studying no. psychiatry or
1: yeah, not at all. I mean, I, th- I th- that whole. Um, he basically came to me when I when I was looking, deciding what to do and stuff. Um, I'd you know did the usual thing. I had a, had a bunch of interests, um, and one of one of the things that I was considering was psychology. Um, and and that's when he was like, "Look, you know, I I don't I you'll you'll be fine with whatever you do." And I only really know one thing, which is you know psychiatry and mental health. Uh, but you know if you're considering doing psychology, you probably should give a serious thought to going to med school and doing psychiatry because it's much more flexible you know you can do all the sort of therapy you want, but you also got um, you know more opportunities around um yeah around other stuff
0: like in terms of you can do more research and get involved in more programs things like that, that- yeah,
1: yeah, pretty much right um, you know he often has um, several anecdotes he, he was involved in in some in academic work as well and he'd done a um, a fellowship over in the states uh, and there was a and he often <laughs> tells this story about a uh, an academic he really wanted to see there a professor who kind of really uh, led a lot of the early work in uh, how the brain functions in um, in kind of depression and other mental illnesses and he was looking everywhere for, for him asked asked a few people and they're like oh Rakesh, you know that guess guess where he is, and because uh, he's he's not working at the institute any, anymore. And it turned out this guy had gone back to medical school because he felt like he'd kind of reached this stage in his career as a professor and like an eminent person in this field that he couldn't go any further until he had a medical degree and had kind of worked with. Um, you know the kinds of people he was trying to kind of study Um, and I think there is a lot of a lot you gain from that kind of direct experience uh, with people that you you know as a as a researcher like just knowing the theory you you can't quite Um, you know another good example is I met met this uh, woman who leads she's a neuropsychologist by training and she um, leads a research team at the moment. And she talked to me about how she was listening to this presentation about some drug company talking about a trial that they were doing in uh, early dementia. And she kind of stuck up her hand and said, "Um, so what are you guys doing to make sure that the patients remember to take the medication? And just got kind of a blank look back. And no one had like considered that if people are having memory problems they might need help remembering to take the tablets like <laughs>
0: that is such a legitimate question which you could understand without experience thinking
1: about <laughs> yeah that too but you know it's the curse of knowledge right you kind of like you don't know what you don't know sometimes and you're just really like focused on 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 one thing so i, I guess that's partly you know the the benefit of kind of the, the broad experience and training that you get in med school that you kind of don't if you dive straight into you know, whatever it just is. Just one thing. Because with med school,
0: what, is there like it's more spread out until you focus on the one yeah. topic, right? So you Pretty just get much. a bit more of a taste of the different elements.
1: Exactly. So even psychiatry training post-med school is five years minimum and you have lots of mandatory rotations, six to 12-month rotations where you see lots of different areas from aged and child and adolescent to, you know, psychotherapy, um, research, etc.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect. It's... Variation, spice of life, and all that, right? Yeah, does that get mentioned in Seneca? He talks about a,
1: not that I remember. Yeah, well, not, but... maybe not praise like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Specialization versus, um, you know, spreading out a little bit, and
1: no, uh, yeah, not that I remember. Mm. But... <laughs> just trying
0: to just just throwing things out to t- touch touch <laughs> it back, you know, right? Um, with the, I mean, you can see it with you. You've done with everything. You, you even even in uni, you were doing arts and medicine. So even at that time, you were obviously just branching out from just being in that one sort of field. Uh, do you kind of aim for that sort of like constantly trying out new things? Is there anything random you try now or is it all more connected now? Having a kid, I guess, limits your options in that regard. <laughs>
1: uh, so I've, no, I'm, I'm definitely still very keen on doing a lot of random stuff. Um, probably the most most random recent thing is last last December, I did, uh, I did a voice course for, for actors uh, just And I guess I try and relate. I, I think one of the beautiful things and part of the reason I, I chose psychiatry is that it relates to everything, right? Like there's no, uh, there's no field of knowledge that is going to go to waste um, in my clinical work, you know, even if it's something random and esoteric or that I've read, you know, there's a chance that I'll, you know, treat someone who's really interested in it and it can be a point of connection. Um,
0: oh, right. Okay. Like uh, even just as a topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, I try and have, know something about about everything <laughs> if I can, um, not necessarily in depth, but you know enough to kind of have a conversation. I think, I think one of the problems with like the, the hyper specialized world, right, is that we um, often adopt things from other areas, but then make it make it our own thing as if we're experts in it, but we're not. You know, like like a, a, an example is that. Um, you know, in in product and service design, right, there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, customer-focused design philosophies um, that are really kind of targeting the the needs and wants and desires of, of the customer. And in medicine, we call that patient-centered care. And we have all of these people that, you know, uh, uh, kind of patient-centered care kind of advocates or, or um, you know, experts Um uh, but really you know that i think they're not they they they're just bad at it in comparison right like you, <laughs> what do you mean? if you well if you cuz we we operate in a monopoly basically right if if people medicine. have medicine in general or healthcare right um i mean there's there's compl- complementary practitioners obviously and so they they kind of it's not an entire monopoly but really if you have certain types of conditions or problems you go to a doctor, or you go to some sort of card-carrying, you know, health professional. Um, generally, <laughs> right. So you're saying and- like, I'm trying
0: to because, like, if I'm if I'm hungry, I can go eat, but I can go to lots of different get my food in different. Like, I'm trying to think of a metaphor to kind of explain. Yeah, because I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, um, you're saying like all doctors are still part of the same industry, and there's no other.
1: Yeah, there's no other game in town in, in some in some ways, right? Like, so even though we. And they all have the same practices and all that sort of things. Yeah, ones. yeah, S- similar yeah. assumptions. And al- also, you, um, well, people, doctors only, doctors and health services, right, only have to go so far to be patient friendly, right? Like, it's not like you're not going to come to this hospital or another hospital because they're not patient centred enough. You got more important things
0: than whether they they're
1: nice to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of bullshit that you'll put up with just because, you know, your stomach hurts a lot or whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's it's <laughs> true. So it's amazing how quickly
0: all, all your beliefs and values go out the window with a
1: bad enough stomach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so so as much as we want to do this stuff, we don't actually have to, right? So the experts are only that expert, right? Whereas when you're in the um in the services sector, you know, building, you know, one of a million email platforms or, you know, to-do list apps or whatever, you know, you, that stuff is really, really important because, you know, you're, people can just go like that to somewhere else. Exactly, exactly, you know, with like sometimes less than 10 seconds, you know, of waiting. So, um, So those are the people that need to be like, that that need to be sought out to to fix stuff in in um you know in patient care or whatever in in that experience. Um, I'm just picturing it. Now. It's like so. So it's just these people who've got no no need to actually improve
0: anything who are like told yeah. to improve it. So like yeah, we should probably put chairs in. Yeah, but they'll
1: stand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like like these people are these people are great, right? Like it's it's good to it's good to know that these things are important and it's good to try, but you need people who actually have skin in the game who are like, who who this is make or break for, right? Um, or at least who've done it in settings that where it's make or break, uh, rather than only operating in healthcare where, you know, sure, it'd be great, but these are bonuses, right? And they're seen as bonuses.
0: Mm. Well, it's interesting you're saying that because obviously, like, you wouldn't say at the same time you want to turn it into a thing where there is skin in the game. Like, how could you possibly... Because healthcare should kind of be what it is. Yeah.
1: It? <laughs> well... I mean I think and I'm I'm very anti the American health system, but um, this is where kind of sometimes you, you know, those market incentives do work in some cases, right? Like so there's uh, there's a very simple uh, you know thing that I've been trying to implement it um, at work here where where I've looked at all the kind of um, opportunity costs and the revenue kind of uh, impacts and the time wasted during doing a process the current way. Um, and we should, by making this change, which will cost maybe, you know, a couple of hundred dollars, we can potentially get revenue gains around the $50,000 mark per year, right? <laughs> but the way we structure our health systems, you know, the, that 50000 will disappear somewhere into the ether of some hospital bottom line, right, and never really be realized by whoever's downstream. Yeah. So actually making the case for, for change is a real pain in the ass sometimes. Like you know, people will, people will kind of listen and say, "Oh yeah, that that sounds good" or whatever. But the incentives don't really kind of help you. It doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't make a big difference. That's right. And so you know, like in Australia, we try and do. We have things like activity-based funding, right, where which is supposed to incentivize some of these things. Like if you see more patients and do more of these types of surgeries or whatever, uh, the government will give you more, give that hospital more money. Uh, but actually it's a it, it's it's a lie right because once uh, they'll give you more money one year and then the next year you know the the like per unit kind of costing will be adjusted a little bit so that you know the total amount is still you the heard same. it here first guys yeah <laughs> don't try yeah. it's not worth it yeah well but you know if you were a if you were a private operator in the states and you know, I as a clinician had this idea that would you know um, release an extra fifty thousand cash. I went to you know some some person in the executive said, "Check this out. You know, this is the cost," and they'd be like, "Yeah, sure, go for it." <laughs> you know, yeah, like that's awesome, um, and they wouldn't spend any time even thinking about it. Um, whereas, you know, yeah, it's a it's a journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that like because that does sound like the classic, which all economics is just incentives, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um. But obviously you don't want the American system because <laughs> look at it. Yeah. Um, but you're seeing the benefits doing it. So you're like, is there a way to take the good things yeah. and not have the bad stuff with it, basically, is what yeah. you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, that'd be ideal.
0: That'd be ideal, obviously that's
1: hard. Yeah, hard. <laughs> it's, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh okay. I mean, you mentioned how like people who've been in that sector who then move across. Like, we're, got, we're fixing the world here, Rahul, between you and me. Because basically, like, you could have, like, sectors which were public, m- like, less comp- competition involved in it. But if you had people cycle through from the other areas where that is the focus, at least then they would bring in that attitude. Yeah. Which obviously you'll never have it the same because if your skin's not in the game, it's not the same. But like that, that's kind of a
1: yeah. way, I guess. Well, that that's – I guess that's what I was getting at with, with doing random stuff, right? Like, if I want to learn – uh. Learn a particular thing that I want to apply to healthcare. I'd rather do a course in that. So at the moment, I'm doing a um, doing an online course on uh, cybersecurity and cyber threats because I'm like a big uh, technology advocate, right? Um, technology and healthcare, but uh, obviously, a lot of people's fears around this stuff is security, but uh, security in a very hand wavy sense, right? Like they don't actually know what risks uh, there there might be they just kind of know that this sounds scary because it's new and it's different. So I feel like... You're it, painting a very grim picture of the health industry. We <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Look, <laughs> look, there are some amazing people working here as well. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, we, we get great outcomes, you know, Australians live longer than most, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's it's a good place to be. Uh, <laughs> just don't but, give me your credit card details. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, they'll, they'll probably lose them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. um, <laughs> no, I, I look. I, I guess, I guess one of my frustrations around healthcare, right, is that, um, and and a lot of industries actually. This, uh, I'm just picking on healthcare because it's what I work in. Um, is that there's a very little, uh, there's a lot of worry about risk, right, when it comes to new things, but very little worry about risk when it comes to what we do all the time, right. Um, So, you know, (laughs) I mean, that sounds
0: like a philosophy of its own, (laughs) that very statement.
1: Okay. You know, because
0: we all do that with everything, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. You could argue, like from a personal perspective.
1: Oh, absolutely. So I, I think you need to, you know, okay, here's an example of an idea I stole from somewhere else that we should apply to healthcare. Um I read this fabulous book uh, called "Stress Test" by Tim Tim Geithner, uh, which changed a lot of my leftist views, actually a little bit. Um, worth a read. He, so uh, Tim Geithner, the author, was Obama's first uh, Treasury Secretary, um, and he was the the sort of Treasury Secretary during the GFC. And so the book is about dealing with financial crises and uh, why they did what they did, uh, and kind of a blow by blow of like yeah the actions they made at that time yeah yeah that's right um fabulous like lots of really interesting stuff there um long book i listened to it as an audiobook like 37 hours or something insane um but yeah really interesting very kind of personal account some cool anecdotes uh, along the way about him and obama and you know the politics of the day um yeah, very interesting. But anyway, uh, one of the reforms they made I- I- during that process is uh, mandatory stress tests for banks and other institutions, um, where they have to they have to kind of war game essentially what would happen in a in another economic crisis and make sure that they have enough money like actual money <laughs> not imaginary money yeah. to to survive you know certain scenarios and they have to report this to the the Fed um, their equivalent of the um, reserve bank um and on a i think annual basis something like that and so that's that's made a, it's actually you know we have some of those reforms to thank for you know surviving to some degree you know the pandemic at right the now. moment right now mm. um uh, but yes, so sorry, stress testing. So that that's a potential answer, right? Like to uh, to making highlighting some of the problems with status quo already. Um, if we did that in healthcare more often, I think we'd find that there's a lot of things that that need to <laughs> they need fixing up. <laughs> that need fixing up. Right. 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 Yeah, that's actually. Uh, do you know Nicholas Nasim Taleb? Uh, yeah, I haven't read any of his stuff, Black but Swan? I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds very
0: much along. He's a big fan, and that's very similar to that sort of stuff. Although he says almost uh, nature is the stress test. So if you just let nature happen. So <laughs> basically he's against like too much protection, is it? Because yeah. if you just let nature do its course, you will be stress testing things all the time anyway. That's true. Um, obviously, you can't do that with fundamental services unless it's a very different structure that we have now. Yeah, yeah. The, the new is always novel is always where you'll do better risk assessments than you will with the stuff that you've already doing
1: yeah but I think you need to do risk assessments with a comparator in mind right so you don't just risk risk assess the new thing that you're going to do whether it's like a personal venture or not think also i guess in the personal context the risk of not doing a thing um and in the kind of uh, work context the risks of what you currently do you know like if Trying to like move this away from the health industry to not encourage sort of uh, dodgy activity, but if you if you put on a construction vest and wandered into <laughs> wandered into Tullamarine Airport, you can, and I know someone who's done this, unscrew like property and just walk out with it, <laughs> right? and and. You know, we do the, the equi- airport, yeah, at the airport, um, and the the equivalent of this exists, you know, in a lot of places. You know, like, yes, cybersecurity is difficult, uh, but not if it's easy to wander into a place and pick up a bunch of paper and just leave. So, right? what are
0: trying to say? Is if I get a good enough doctor's coat, I can probably steal an eyeball? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs>
1: uh, you might just have to look in a filing cabinet, you know. Like it's just like, like and they
0: won't even know it's gone. Yeah, <laughs> for years sometimes. <laughs> so
1: this uh, has been a
0: really interesting. <laughs> time. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying to do the protections in place for that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So either you know, either fix what you're currently doing, uh, or look at the new. And if the new is also bringing you some benefits, and it's just as problematic as the current. Do than you <laughs> like. okay right, right
0: yeah yeah, like it's just because if it's the same risks but it's also got benefit more benefits yeah. It's, yeah yeah but obviously then you it's so far it's always comes back to politics though, doesn't it because yeah. then the person who picked that they're like oh it's like he was doing it before but it's like yeah. yeah but you chose this one yeah uh interesting um well we've gone we've gone all over the place <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I tell you what. yeah um some of these attitudes don't seem to be what you're saying now, aren't maybe reflected in Seneca because obviously <laughs> his is more general in yeah. his writings. Yes. Uh, so, I guess, did it, so it, it's, so when you chose Seneca as your, like, I guess, favorite in this instance, did you choose it more because of its focus on seizing the day almost? That sounds like its main focus of the shortness of life. Yes. Right?
1: Yeah. I think
0: that's fair. Yeah. So even though there are a million other philosophies and policies and stuff that you've got many thoughts on, <laughs> yeah. For you, the fundamental thing is actually this notion of, I guess, well, in his attitude, living in the past, but which means being well, doing the most of the present.
1: Yeah, and also to to live in the past, you need to create a decent path, past worth living in, right? You. you... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's
0: part of like your focus there. You're like, I want.
1: Yeah, you got to do cool stuff, right? <laughs> and life is short, so you, you kind of, yeah, you don't want to waste it. I mean, it, it, one of his big focuses is that it's the, you know, I guess a lot of people have said this, but it's the one resource you don't get back, you can't create more of. So, um, you know, I think you do have to keep that in mind when you're making decisions about what you do and uh, in, in your every day and, uh, you know, who you spend time with and all that kind of stuff.
0: And now, like, is the new thing any worse than what I'm doing right now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, at least when you do a new thing, like, you're growing, right? You're, you're learning something new, um,
0: you know. Yeah, because, like, obviously, you do sound like you've crossed a lot of different areas in your reading and all that stuff. So, to hear that being your focus is just interesting. Yeah. On the show. Like, have you, have you, I guess, <laughs> the a heavy thing to ask <laughs> at the end, but uh, has there been any instances of, like, whether it's you or a family member or someone where you've had to confront that philosophy head on
1: um luckily not for anyone who I'm very close to, um, but I think um, but I definitely saw like a bit of that sort of growing up with people who I wasn't close to, but who still had like it still had like a bit of an impact on my life um, so it does kind of. Yeah, it does help focus your mind. Some of those moments, right? Mm. You're like, you know, yeah, sure. Like, you know, life is temporary or whatever. And uh, yeah, better, better crack on. <laughs> well,
0: it sounds like you're cracking on. Well, I, guess. <laughs> um, I should probably call it off there. But man, uh, thanks so much for being on. Um, I always ask. I don't know if we'll get there this time. But uh, do you feel like you've learned anything new about Seneca from this or
1: from uh, your book t- choice? Don't know about don't know about Seneca in. Per se, but this has been a really interesting chat. I've enjoyed it a great deal. No
0: worries. Thanks a lot, Rahul.
1: Thank you, George. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com. For as little as $5 a
1: month, you can have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.